power is in our ability to make things unworkable. The only weapon we have is our bodies. 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 I am here to represent the struggle that has gone on for 300 or more years. 300 Welcome to a special episode of season two of How We Breathe. I'm Jonathan Stiff, a bold national organizer working alongside Jennifer Toes and other amazing organizers to train new cohorts of boulders. This is the place where we share intimate conversations with the voices that don't often make it into the news. We explore how young leaders are building on the legacy of Black resistance while finding new tactics to meet this moment. As leaders engage not only in organizing, but in embodiment practices and land-based strategies for healing and justice, Bold has been paying attention to the new and urgent discussions and local developments to advance reparations not only for slavery, but for Jim Crow, the war on drugs, and the ongoing systems of oppression that we are still experiencing today. We are doing something a little bit different this special episode. We're going to connect with Bold producer Niasha Lang about her time at the UN Permanent Forum on Afro-Descendant Persons, where reparations was on the official agenda, as well as the topic of many of the events planned by participants from around the world. We're also joined today by the very first boulder to come on to How We Breathe, Richard Wallace, Executive Director of Equity and Transformation Now. We're bringing him back to chat about his campaign for reparations in Chicago and give us his take on strategies for reparative justice in the United States. When I talked to Richard, we explored whether reparations is truly a pathway to accountability healing, and liberation today. So, Niasha, you attended the second session of the UN Permanent Forum for Afro-Descendants, a major convening of Black leaders from across the globe in New York City. What was the purpose of this convening, and what did it feel like to be there? Yeah, so this was a major gathering uh, consisting of country representatives from government, as well as civil society from countries uh, throughout Africa, the Americas, and Europe. And it was really enabled by the UN General Assembly's Resolution 75314, which operationalized the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent, which is a consultative mechanism um, to the Human Rights Council, which gathers influence and examines policies and key political frameworks, um, specifically impacting people of African descent um, who are often marginalized, uh, of course, in their countries, as well as in the UN processes themselves. And it really was looking at um, a variety of issues, a comprehensive set of issues affecting Black people, including, um, you know, social conditions, issues of security and safety, accountability, um, you know, and basic dignity and human rights. And for me, I mean, I thought it was really historic. I've never seen uh, in my lifetime such a large and diverse gathering of Black activists, organizers, um, lawyers, uh, scholars, and theorists, um, women-identified leaders, youth advocates, um, 
and just people from Black-led organizations from so many countries in one place. There were a number of uh, technical presentations, as well as in the plenary, um, sort of robust dialogue on on issues like migration and land rights and um, displacement, housing and poverty. People were very interested, I found, in collecting and sharing data, data that can be used, um, you know, to uh, to put their governments to task. But also, um, in particular, there was a really interesting presentation I found um, by uh, a group of organizations involved with the study and a geospatial tool that sort of facilitates categorization of uh, Afro-descendant land uses and just their overall presence um, in various communities in 16 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Some of those communities uh, we know that are particularly grounded on the land are the Quilombo, um, the Maroons, um, and th- those, those other groups that have sort of inspired some of uh, the teachings at Bold. What were some of the conversations taking place around reparations? There were a number of presentations organized by individual organizations as well as coalitions uh, looking at the issue of reparations, both national and regional, um, as well as local in the U.S. And um, these these uh, presentations also extended to, again, uh, conversations that were happening in the main sessions inside the U.N. And one of the main events was sponsored by Howard University Law School's Thurgood Marshall Center for Civil Rights, um, Professor Justin Hansford, who is also a member of the Permanent Forum, chaired this event. Here he is introducing the program. So this this appeal is an appeal that we know would be something that our ancestors would be proud of. Black communities don't need platitudes or piecemeal solutions. We need holistic reparations. We need our communities to be made whole. Through this work, we hope to begin that process of getting what is ours. Um, I've worked in collaboration with each of the organizations that will be presenting here tonight. Um, I'm very proud of the work done, especially by Howard University law students. Um, Let's give them a hand. There's one here, Layton Godwell. So what he's saying there is that communities are looking for holistic solutions. And um, as you probably know, there are many universities engaged with community-led research around the harms that Black people have experienced across this country and trying to come up with solutions that are not only monetary, but also deal with uh, restitution, that deal with education, that deal with the holistic repair of communities. And so there were a number of organizations who presented their approaches um, in this regard. So interesting. Now, well, let's turn to Richard. I'm so excited to get into this conversation with him. Yes. Hello, my name is Richard Wallace. I'm the founding uh, executive director of Equity and Transformation, also known as EAT, based in Chicago, Illinois. We are a movement-building organization, a base-building organization. Uh, we, we like to say that we do three main things. We build, we empower, we grow, and that we build alternatives. We empower through personal development, leadership development, 
black wellness activities and we grow um, ultimately through black communities and um, yeah, throughout the state of Illinois. Um, and our mission is to build power uh, with black informal workers. These are folks that are boxed out of the formal economy due to things like ableism, transphobia, homophobia, and the mark of a criminal record. And folks don't understand the difference between formal and informal. Informal is like, if you think about informal, think about Eric Garner, who was killed selling loose cigarettes. Think about Alton Sterling, um, who was killed selling DVDs. And think about, you know, the countless uh, cis and transgender commercial, commercial sex workers who die in this country every year. These are folks that are um, creating an income where there is none um, uh, as, you know, informal ways. Right. Um, so, yeah, those are the folks we organize with and we do it primarily in communities with extremely high rates of unemployment. What exists in the informal economy is not fixed, right? Like, so it doesn't stay there. Occupations that exist there are not fixed. They migrate from informal to formal, right? You'll see this. It happened with bootlegging alcohol. When it was informal, you know, that means where you didn't have to fill out a license, go to the EEOC, pass these, you know, all. you had a high rate of black activity, right? You had a number of bootleggers. Jack Daniels stole our recipe, right? The second that it becomes formalized by the state, which is this is where the problem exists, where, where it's formal and these markets become formalized by the state, they generally create an impossible, um, you know, uh, equation for black folks to solve. Um, and, you know, they do so while knowing, you know, the issues or the, you know, the challenges that our communities face. Right. So, you know, they put, you know, you have to have a million dollars to enter the market. Right. You need all of these different, you know, you know, these different licenses and you need to understand how to work within the state system. So the different systems that are set up in place for you to get a license after you win the license, you need to go and get zoning. After you get zoning, then you can get to the bill. You know, all of those different processes when it should just be as simple as grow the weed, sell it. Right. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? And so as it related to cannabis legalization in Illinois, um, they put through, you know, upon legalization, they put through um, and we advocated for the first bill to incorporate reparations for the war on drugs. It was a bill called HB 1438. And I think at the time, this is 2019, I think a lot of us were assuming that this, you know, you know, due to it incorporating and embedding, you know, reparations as a framework, um, we assumed that the, the end result would, would be, you know, inclusion in the market. You know, um, the you know, uh, we would get what we we would we would find satisfaction around the UN's definition of reparations. And that's the framework we come at it at this with. And that is rehabilitation, restitution, compensation and a guarantee of non-repetition. Right. And so we there were some satisfaction in there. Right. We got, you know, 800,000 expungements. We got 25 percent of the cannabis tax revenue, like dedicated to community. Um, communities, we got a map, right, that defined eligibility for licenses, and that was this DIA map, disproportionately impacted area map, disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, right? And so we got a number of, we got a, we got a strong foundation upon which I think we can begin to advocate more along. Landing kind of what I heard is one, you have the state of Illinois, and I guess the city of Chicago state government, they have acknowledged uh, that there was a war on drugs that they uh, prosecuted that 
targeted specifically uh, black folk and other communities of color and other folks along other intersections. If we can tie that back to what we understand the the admission of one of the officials from the from the Nixon administration that talked about how they used uh, drugs and the war on drugs to basically um, criminalize communities, particularly our communities, in a in a in a revolutionary moment. Um, now we also now understand the use of the importing of uh, drugs into our communities to actually help fun uh, fights to overthrow other liberation efforts in other parts of the world, particularly uh, Nicaragua. Um, now, and then we find this kind of war at home, or at least an admission of this of this war, um, particularly in Illinois and Chicago. I guess if you could talk a little bit about uh, the importance of that, of helping to also set the context uh, for the organizing around reparations. You know, I think in 2021, we saw the results after legalization. And in those results, we saw that um, I believe there was over, over 2000 arrests for cannabis under legalization. Um, and over 70 percent of those arrests were black folks. Um, so right then and there, we understood that our folks were literally boxed out of the market. Um, and then we took a look at the cost of marijuana um, in the formal market. And the cost of marijuana was about 60 dollars a gram. Um, and so, you know, if you live in West Garfield Park and the average per capita income is 11900 how you got $60 to spend on a gram of weed? Like, it's just not cost conducive, right? And so our folks were still engaged in the informal market in order to, um, you know, participate in the market in any way that they could, right? Whether you're buying or you're, you're selling, you couldn't afford to, you know, build a brick and mortar, which was a million, nor could you really afford or sustain you know, purchasing cannabis at $60 a gram. So our folks were, you know, even within the formal market, we were still boxed out. Um, and so we began to think through, you know, like if this is about reparations and what would compensation look like? Um, and particularly what would compensation look like using cannabis tax revenue? Um, because we fought for and won what we considered like 25% of that revenue, right? Um, and it was supposed to be committed to communities and it wasn't. It was actually committed to nonprofits. And although we have, you know, we celebrate the, the work of the nonprofits that have won some of these grants, we believe wholeheartedly that nonprofits are not the survivors of the war on drugs. The people are. And so we want to reallocate those that cannabis tax revenue into a permanent um, fund for survivors of the war on drugs. As it relates to, you know, the war, it was not a war on drugs. It was a war on black people. Right. I think that we're going to use the framework that they that they best understand in this context. Right. And this is the war on drugs. Right. Um, uh, and we have you know, I think that because we have, you know, uh, elected officials on record saying that this is about reparations for the war on drugs, we're going to make them acknowledge what that actually means. Right. Um, and that means that one, there's satisfaction. Right. Um, two, that you're going to compensate the survivors. Three, you're going to rehabilitate those communities. Uh, three, you're going to restore those people. Um, and, and four, you're going to guarantee non-repetition. That means you're going to close the door on the impact, right? And, 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 on the, and on the targeting of Black people and Black bodies. And so that is a, you know, that's a heavy lift. You know what I mean? Like, that's a heavy lift to guarantee non-repetition. You know, we have some demands, you know, as it relates to, to each pillar. Um, 
One is that, you know, you, you know, in the use of permanent punishments and collateral consequences, right? So anybody has been formally incarcerated, as soon as we come home from jail or an institution, we have 11,900 permanent punishments in the state of Illinois. These are restrictions to, um, you know, majority uh, housing, education, and employment opportunities. Um, and so, you know, that is a restriction that isn't, you know, outlined as it relates to, you know, their definition of reparations for the war on drugs. Um, compensation, they assume that if they give, they they provide resources to nonprofit organizations that somehow turns into, you know, compensation for survivors. And it doesn't. It's just you're compensating foundation, you know, nonprofits and serving as a, as a foundation. Um, you know, rehabilitation, um, you know, there is, you know, I think that's where the, you know, I think the nonprofits can do more work, right? And, and as a, you know, in, in, the, in the area of rehabilitation um, and then restoring survivors, you know, that really gets into, you know, family separation, you know, um, you know, re reuniting folks. Uh, those are the pieces I think that, you know, our vision for drug war reparations, which we intend to release in July, will really outline, you um, a comprehensive, you know, campaign or vision for drug war reparations in Illinois. Um, I will say that, you know, on a separate note, as it relates to, you know, th I think there's different arcs in which this reparations conversation is happening. The arc that we're in is the drug war reparations, but the arc that I'm in as a black person in the U.S. is the larger conversation around reparations for chattel slavery, right? And I think that, you know, one of the pieces that I've been most curious about over the course of the last year has been restitution. Um, and although it's kind of like one of the ones that people just kind of skip over to just like oh, rehabilitation, restitution, and people are like compensation is the most important. Um, but as it relates to, you know, this conversation, which I'm having it with Bold and um, my, in the healing community, one of the most important pieces is restitution. And restitution essentially says that is, a, is essentially a commitment, right, to um, to ensure that the survivors of a particular harm are in the position that they would have been in if the harm hadn't occurred, right? And so as that relates to not drug war reparations, which is a different category altogether, but it's connected. Um, but as it relates to chattel slavery, that means that I get to know my last name. I get to know my connection to the land and that land not being the United States of America. I get to know my language, right? My, my native tongue or my indigenous tongue. Um, I'm reconnected to home, right? Because that's who I was before the harm occurred, right? And I think sometimes we skip over that. And although compensation is, is, is what's glorified the most, one of the dopest aspects of reparations is restitution, in my opinion. No, I think you're uh, you're you're uh, definitely getting at I think what you know again where we understand this kind of connection around our organizing and this desire for kind of healing justice, um, and also kind of what you've laid out in this in the kind of five uh, uh, pillars of uh, reparations um, brings us to this kind of questions like if those things were achieved even if your demands were achieved. Um, that would require a fundamental change uh, in the relationship, a fundamental change in the material conditions of uh, of, of Black folk almost immediately. So I, if you could talk a little bit about how you understand uh, this fight around reparations, um, 
not only being about the repair of a community, but also a transformation of society and really a transformation of the world if we understand the global uh, context and connections uh, of the issue of reparations uh, and even the drug war. I'm only gonna, I can only speak to what I know, right? Um, I just got back from New Zealand, uh, New Zealand, Autoria, New Zealand, um, which is the, the the native name for the land, which has been colonized and redefined as New Zealand. And I was there, I was able to sit in community with Māori, which are the Māori people, which are the indigenous people of that land. And they, we went there essentially because one, they had recently won reparations is one of the few folks have actually won um, from indigeneity under the guise of this promise that they would, you know, achieve some sort of some form of equity under this capitalist system. Right. And so there was promise of jobs and, you know, you get TVs and iPhones and all this other stuff. Right. Um, And that's not what they got. Right. Um, They didn't get access to the economy, similar to the way that our folks in Chicago don't didn't get access to the economy. And what they ended up forming were gangs, street tribes, et cetera, in response, right? Um, and so you go there, and one of the one of the most prominent gangs there is a gang called, uh, or tribes there, is a tribe called uh, the Black Powers. And they got these big Black Power fists on their face, but they're, they're like no different than the Bloods and the Crips here, right? And they were actually informed, and, and they, there was, they started because the Black Panther Party went out there back in the day um, during their, their uprising. Um, and so they went back and the elders were like, no, 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 no. We need to get these folks out of the city and back into indigeneity and understand their roots. They reconnected them around their relationship to the land, around reconnection to their language, their native tongue, um, uh, and their lineage. Right. And what was so beautiful about while I was there is that you got youth and elders all talking about who they are, who their elders are what their elders' relationship was to the land and saying it in their native tongue. And that that foundation of understanding was the bedrock of which all the change that it's occurring in New Zealand for Māori people is built upon. Not the, we're going to go, you know, like, and I, and I think which was different than for me in, in Chicago, you know, immediately what I began to think about is like, what is my journey for reparations? What is my connection to the land? And I'm thinking like, you know, my mom's name is Reverend Doris Green. Her mother's name is, my grandfather's name is, and I can't go no further than that. My family got here by way of Jackson, which is a hurting concept because Jackson, there's no way in the world Jackson can birth the melanin that is in my skin. There's a part of our story that is not that my story. I don't know what everybody else is. It is not full. It's not complete yet. Right. And then we're operating ultimately off of that, that broken story. Our identities are formed off of a broken story. And so this idea of restitution completes the story for us. Right. And so that's why I feel like it is the most important pillar. And, and so going back to what, what happened in New Zealand is that they pivoted in a, away from dismantling the state. Right. And I feel like so much of our energy as black revolutionaries, uh, act, activists and organizers is so focused on healing the state, no matter how unhealed we are in the process. Right. 
And what I learned about what was going on in New Zealand is they weren't saying healing for the sake of healing, like let's do yoga together, right? They were healing very intentionally to restore their people to who they were. And that they said to me, they said that if we hadn't healed, what we would create would be through the lens of our oppressors, right? So it's like very important to decolonize so that you don't recreate colonization, right? And so like, I was like, wow, like that's so wild, right? Because when I hear about, you know, we get the bag and we're going to start a business and we're going to make big bags of money and make more, I'm like, that ain't the goal, right? And and, and until we get to the point where we de- completely decolonize, right, which is what restoration, I mean, restitution ultimately commits to, then, you know, our vision of what we can achieve post-reparations will always be um, faulted, right? It'll always be faulty, right? Um, And so for me, you know, again, you know, thinking about New Zealand uh, ended up, you know, directing me to Benin, West Africa, where I was able to kind of learn about our lineage, our our language, um, our history, um, and I was inspired to be like, yo, we're going to have to ex- kick off something in Chicago similar to this compensation piece that really explores what restitution would feel like for our folks, right? To recommit, re- to reconnect our folks to land, language, and lineage. Um, and, 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 and see, just see, just see, does that actually change things for people, right? If they actually know that my story does not begin in Jackson. Jackson was a stop in which my people made Right. But before that, they've stopped many other places. Um, But the place that they started at was on the continent of Africa. Right. And so that it's really important for me to kind of like I'm just on a journey right now to continue to share that message. And I know it's not necessarily related to the drug war piece, but it is something that is so essential um, to the to the larger context of chattel slavery reparations. And I hope that it lands, you know, for folks to really begin to explore that that pillar. a little bit deeper because that is the one they're afraid of. Yeah. Thank you so much to Richard for coming on today's show and sharing the learnings from Eats incredible campaign to win the fight for reparations. Their work is something that we all continue to look to in our organizing. Thank you to Niasha for reporting from the UN and to you all for listening. We hope this episode was as meaningful to you as it was for us. How We Breathe is written and produced by Niasha Lang, edited and produced by Eddie Hemphill. This show is powered by Bold and its community of alumni. Check us out on Instagram at We Breathe Bold and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Black love.